2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we have started a, uh, we started some weeks back a two-part series, if you will. It's not really a series because we're just teaching verse by verse through the Bible. But we're looking at First and Second Thessalonians and we called the big teaching our crown at his coming based upon First Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. We completed First Thessalonians last Sunday and we are now moving right to the second book, which is Second Thessalonians. So if you have it, would you stand to your feet if you're able to physically as we read the text together? Second Thessalonians 1. Rest and retribution. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, 2 Thessalonians 1.1, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God and your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Five, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony uh, to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Rest in retribution. I mentioned to you when we uh, launched the study in First and Second Thessalonians that next to Revelation, this, uh, these two letters have the most about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see once again that we are going to be in that territory as we look at his second coming. You, you'll notice at the end of the, the passage that we just read, or nearing the end, we have some very strong, powerful, sobering uh, revelation about the return of the Lord and what's going to happen when he returns. And it is captured in apocalyptic language, uh, flaming fire and the mighty angels coming and dealing out retribution. And this is the theme that we picked up in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, which is the day of the Lord. And we jumped into a study in chapter 5 where we looked at the Bible and we looked at eight different Old Testament authors that talk about the day of the Lord and several New Testament authors that also talk about the day of the Lord and what will surround that. And even in this first century young church that Paul had planted with the other missionaries mentioned in verse 1, Paul Silvanus is a lengthened form of the name Silas and Timothy. These were the three missionaries that went into Thessalonica. Just to remind you, in Acts chapter 17, we won't go back over that because we set the groundwork for the two letters when we introduced the books. But Acts 17 is where you'd want to look, verses 1 through 15, to see how the church was planted. And they went into this Greek city and they reasoned in the synagogue and people got saved and a church was planted, but there was persecution almost immediately. What we do know for sure that is that Paul was there for three Sabbaths, maybe for a couple of months, and he grounded the church in, in, in as much truth as he could, and then he left the city and he moved on and he went to Berea and then ended up in Corinth in chapter 18 of the book of Acts. And he writes back to these, this church, uh, probably from Corinth, and not too long afterwards, 
And scholars date 1st and 2nd Thessalonians around 50 to 51 AD. Most believe that Jesus died around 33 AD, somewhere in there. Some say 30 AD. And so what you have is these letters written within about 20 years of the passion of the, of the Christ. So within about 20 years of the events of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, missionaries go out. The preaching starts in Jerusalem. It goes to Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is one of those parts where a church was planted because missionary hearts went out. Paul was called. He went uh, all over the Roman world as best he could, and he began to preach the gospel to strategic cities, and this was one of them. And this city was very strategic for the gospel to go out to many different places. In fact, one of the reasons it came to us is because it got to Thessalonica. And so Paul is addressing this church and writing this second letter. Most scholars would say 2 Thessalonians comes quickly after 1 Thessalonians. So you don't have a big gap between the two letters. They are very near in terms of the dating. Uh, a typical greeting comes in verse 2, grace to you and peace. The word grace is charis in uh, Greek. The word peace is irene. It is a synonym for shalom in Hebrew. And this is a common greeting, grace to you and peace. You can't have peace without grace. If you have God's grace in your life, then you're going to have his peace because you're going to have peace with him and you're going to have experiential peace. And notice that that grace and peace comes from God the Father, the sender, and the Lord Jesus Christ, the sent one. Jesus Christ, when he was walking the earth, was the visible manifestation of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. In John 17.3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus said, if you have seen me, John 14, 9, you have seen the Father. That is why when letters open, this uh, connection between the Father and the Son is so close. They are both the source of grace and peace because it comes from the sender, the Father, who so loved the world that he gave or sent his Son, and from the sent one, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. That's why Father and Son are often included in this greeting, and of course, by implication, the Spirit of God as well. And we have this wonderful greeting that I think we would want to share with everyone that we know and we love, that they would experience grace and peace. That's my prayer for you, that you would have grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would be well. But this Thessalonian church needed some encouragement because they were dealing with persecution. They needed to be reminded of the rest that they have in Jesus. They had believed on him and found rest for their souls, but they were going through some intense persecution and life wasn't easy. To make matters worse, just reading a little bit from my notes, apparently someone had sent them a letter or a message in Paul's name, we'll get into it in the next chapter, telling them that they had entered into the day of the Lord. Some of the Thessalonian believers decided that if the Lord's coming was so near, there was no need to work anymore. They quit their jobs and they began to wait for him. The persecution was hot and the burden for the church trying to care for those who were not working became very heavy. This church would have been understandably either confused about their eschatology or the things related to the last days or frightened or both by what was happening. They were being told that they had entered into the day of the Lord by someone who had written a letter in Paul's name. And they were trying to care, care for the burdens of the church. And when there is doctrinal confusion in a fellowship, and when people begin to walk out that confusion, it lays burdens on people. It can be doctrinal burdens, but it can also be practical burdens. And because people were confused about their eschatology, they began to quit their jobs and really kind of mooch off of other believers. And because of the nature of the church caring for one another, people felt obligated to care for their brethren. But it wasn't fair, and it was based upon a false teaching. I will tell you this, uh, a group that started really in the 1900s called Jehovah's Witnesses has done this sadly to their own people. They predicted the end of the world on multiple occasions, including 1914, 
And they got their people all revved up. They had all this apocalyptic teaching that was going out, beginning with Charles Taze Russell. And many of these faithful Jehovah's Witnesses who had been duped by the Watchtower and by Russell and Rutherford and others quit their jobs and they gave themselves to full-time what they might call missionary work going door to door. They thought the end of the world was near. And if you followed any of the teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses, you know how sad it is that every prediction they made, they were wrong. And they had people literally in the 1900s quitting their jobs, not going to college, not having children, all based upon a false prophecy from a false prophet. And it was unfortunate because Charles Taze Russell didn't know what he was talking about. In fact, he got some of his predictions from measuring the inner chambers of the pyramids in Egypt. That's how bizarre his prophecies were. And this, this is how false prophecy and false doctrine can affect a whole group of people. And there were many Jehovah's Witnesses over the years that became disenfranchised as they predicted the return of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in 1925 and even bought a mansion down in San Diego called Beth Sarim. Spent, I believe, millions of dollars to anticipate the return of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I don't have to tell you that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not show up. And so in order to cover their tracks... They said that Jesus invisibly returned in 1914 instead of visibly appearing, but it was all a cover-up, and many Jehovah's Witnesses left uh, the organization. And this happened many, many times during the 1900s. And finally, their, I think their most current president, or the one before that, said that they were going to stop making predictions and stop setting dates. Yeah, I would say that that would be a good idea. But it's not just Jehovah's Witnesses that have had an issue with prophecy and understanding the end times or what we call eschatology. And I mentioned to you, and I say that word, the word eschaton, it just has the idea of the last days. Ology just means the study of. So eschatology is just the study of the last things or the last days. And this is what we're dealing with here. And this church was confused and they were young in the Lord. And you know, when people are young in the Lord and they don't have a whole lot of foundation to what they believe, and maybe they hear one perspective on, you know, a point of view from someone that looks like they're authoritative, people can become confused. And this letter had come apparently at least claiming to be in Paul's name, and it caused a lot of uh, unrest. And so grace and peace takes on maybe a little uh, more uh, uh, depth here uh, and, and direct need in terms of this church. Paul says in verse 3, we ought always, or we are bound, New King James, verse 3, always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because there are three things that he's going to mention about this church. Your faith is greatly enlarged, two, in the middle of verse 3, the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. What a great growing church. And then in verse 4, he's going to talk about their perseverance in and faith in the midst of all your persecutions. One way to identify the fact that the Thessalonian congregation was healthy was their faith was growing and being enlarged, their love was growing, and their persever perseverance was holding fast. It's a good way to measure your walk. Is your faith growing? Is it enlarging? If your faith enlarges, if you become a person that is growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're growing in your faith, your ability to minister to others will enlarge. If I can use an Old Testament image, your territory will enlarge in terms of impact. You'll be able to impact more people the more you grow in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I ask you this morning, is your faith enlarging? Can you say, you know what, I'm not the person that I used to be a year ago. I'm not the person I want to be, but I certainly have grown in my faith. I have grown in the faith and understanding what I believe and why I believe and how to defend it and how to share it and how to make it really the priority of my life and how to know that without faith it's impossible to please God. I hope and pray that that's the case. Now, he says, I want to point out something in verse 3 that I think is important. He says, we are bound, New King James, always to give thanks to God for you. This is almost the idea of duty. Paul feels uh, bound, and you could say, of course, it's only right, but 
he says, we ought to always give thanks to God for you. When you hear of a, of a people group, a church holding firm, give thanks to God for those people, wherever they may be. If you know a friend that you led to the Lord some years back and that person's still walking with the Lord, I think we are bound to give thanks to God for that, amen? amen. And by the way, I was listening to another teacher and he was teaching on these verses and he said, you know what, giving thanks is spiritually therapeutic. Let me explain. When you are a thankful person, it will breathe spiritual health into your life. Amen? And so this is an important kind of just a little nugget of application here. It says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren. You know, there are, there are many things that are going on in this world and many reasons that we could go down our list to be negative but here, Paul is so positive. Paul could talk about his stonings and shipwrecks and rejections, but he praises God that this little church was standing firm. He gives thanks to God. And I will tell you that whenever you begin to go down a list of thankfulness, it will be therapeutic to your soul. Because negativity will breed, will breed uh, kind of, it will poison your spiritual life. Everybody with me? But thankfulness will breathe goodness and health into your spiritual life. And in fact, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul talks about not, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, right in those verses he talks about praising God as a regular habit and being thankful into verse 20, Ephesians 5. We won't go there as a spiritual habit, as if to say being filled with the Spirit is connected to praise and to thanksgiving. And I think that that is true. Because I think a thankful heart is a heart that's turning to God in gratitude. And that's one way that I believe that we keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. We keep thinking about the goodness of God in the land of the living. Now he says it's only fitting that we do this. Your faith is greatly large. We celebrate that. The love that you have for one another is growing ever greater. Good prayer to pray for people is, and for ourselves, is, Lord, let my love grow greater and greater every day. Let me be more loving than I was yesterday, not less. And this church was doing that. And they were doing it in the midst, persevering in the midst of much persecution. Look at verse four. We, are, we, all, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. We boast about you. We tell people, man, that Thessalonian church is amazing. We boast among the churches of God of you, of your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions. See that word afflictions in your Bible? Unless you have a New King James, it's, it's rendered afflictions, I believe, in every version that I know of. But here it is tribulations, or you could say troubles. It is the Greek word flipsis, which is the common word rendered tribulations. They were going through all these persecutions and tribulations, and they were enduring them. And that this little church was holding on. And you maybe have been going through a lot of stuff. We were talking about at the men's conference yesterday, the last six months has been really challenging for a lot of people. But in many ways, it's been good for us to be stretched, to be challenged as American Christians. We'd be a little soft, people. Let's face it. We've had it really good for a pretty long time. And now we are facing some tribulating, if you want to put it that way. And it's challenging us a little bit to ask ourselves what we really believe. And do we believe when it's convenient? Or are we willing to stand in the midst of persecutions, which are here, by the way? And we've been telling you about what's been happening to churches and uh, how they've been under threat of jail and fines. Some churches now find over $100,000 and court dates, and it is happening. And by the way, it's just about maybe 30 to 50 miles down the road if you think that it's just not gonna touch you, right? That's sometimes what we think. Oh, it's over there, so it's not a problem for me. But maybe that is the problem, that we're not really used to standing strong for the Lord. And I believe that the Lord is stretching us. And look at verse five. This is an interesting verse. It says, this 
And he was just talking about their persecution and them standing in the midst of tribulation. This is a plain indication. It is New King James' manifest evidence of God's righteous judgment. Say what? Standing tall in the midst of persecution is manifest evidence of God's righteousness? How so? How could it be that facing persecutions and trials somehow would be manifestation of God's righteousness? Because suffering, please hear me well, you may not like it, you may not even want to write it down, but here it is. Suffering always precedes glory. Always. Even in the case of Jesus Christ, he suffered on the cross prior to him being glorified, if you will. Of course, the glory was in the cross, but it was also in the resurrection, also in his ascension, also in his current ministry. God is glorified when the church, please hear this well, stands strong in the midst of persecution. God is glorified. In fact, this may be a little hard for some of you to take or understand, but I believe that God allows this to mature and stretch his people. And that may be a difficult thing, but many of you know that when you're cruising and you're in cruise control, you don't have to think much about God. You don't have to rely much on God. You can kind of just do your thing and you can add God to your portfolio. And that's what a lot of American Christians have done. But I want to take you to a passage in 2 Peter. Let's go over there for a second. Uh, which Peter talks a lot about this idea of suffering in the midst of trial. Actually, it's uh, 1 Peter. 1 Peter. Notice it says, uh, 1 Peter 1, and Peter's been talking about this uh, group of people protected by the power of God. He says, in this, 1 Peter 1, 6, you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, I got that circled in my Bible, 1 Peter 1, 6, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at what? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, this is the biblical reality that God says sometimes he feels it's necessary for you to be in the midst of some trouble. Now, do I fully get that and understand all the angles of that and know when it's God and it's just circumstances and all that? I don't know, but I will tell you this if you go back to 1 Thessalonians. What I do know is that nothing comes into my life unless it first passes through the filter of God's love because God's ultimately sovereign. And so in this verse, this is something that we now need to put into our theological thinking is that sometimes God allows us to go through the fire that the proof of our faith might be manifest and it takes us all the way to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he looks at us and says, well done. You, were, you stood strong in the midst of trial. Jesus had to do it. Paul had to do it. 2,000 years of church history reveals it. Our brethren around the world have to, de have to deal with it and now we've got a little bit of it. And brethren, that's okay, because our God is faithful. Amen? Do you believe that? Yes. Do you believe that faith stories are being written right now about what we did in this time? I believe that. I believe that there's going to be generations that look back and ask the question, what happened in 2020 in California and other places where there was some persecution, there was some decisions to be made? We are on the cusp of a very critical election in our time. We have a country that is going like this, man. And we need to decide what it is that we believe and why we believe it. 
And what is it that anchors our hope? Paul says, this is a plain indication of God's righteousness or righteous judgment, verse 5, so that you may be considered worthy, interesting, of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Suffering saints are given the privilege to suffer in Jesus' name. You say, some of you are saying, the privilege to suffer? What in the world are you talking about? Let's go over to Philippians. A little bit before uh, Thessalonians, go to Philippians chapter 1. Let me show you another verse that deals with, with this topic. And I, I, I'm bringing this out because it's in the text, but I also want to say to you that there's a whole movement within the professing Christian church that doesn't want to talk to you about suffering. They don't believe that suffering could ever be God's will. And if you've heard that preaching, you start to get the idea that the only way that God could be working in your life is if you own three mansions, a yacht, and a limo. That that's the only way that God could be manifesting his righteousness in your life. That is a lie. It is a big fat lie. And you know, many people who have bought that lie, hook, line, and sinker, have gone out the back door of these kinds of churches in droves because they've been sold an idea of God's blessing that it's simply false. It's not biblical. And maybe you have uh, been exposed to that kind of preaching or you've sat under that kind of preaching. And if you have, let me just say to you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because you were not told the truth of what the New Testament actually teaches about the Christian life. The Christian life is filled with many, many blessings. So please don't get me wrong. But it also includes some suffering. And that, God's will. Notice, this is Philippians 1.27. It says, and let me just throw out the question, suffering on behalf of the kingdom, kingdom, is it a prerequisite for entering the kingdom? Just chew on that for a second. Philippians 1.27 says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, Philippians 1.27, so that whether I come and see you, says Paul to this church, or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, Good to stand together, right? With one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which, notice, is a sign of destruction for them when you're not alarmed by them and you just keep going, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, please mark it, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul never hid the fact, nor should we, that suffering is part of the Christian life. And it is interesting to me, I've read some books on suffering and looked at some of the data on suffering, and it's really interesting to consider uh, about the research and what comes back. This is Ravi Zacharias recently who went home to be with the Lord, suffered from terrible back problems and suffered his own persecution. He says this, meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain, but from being weary of pleasure, close quote. Sometimes we get the idea from this broken world that you just got to heap up pleasure upon pleasure upon pleasure, and then you'll finally be happy. But do you know that that's not what life actually reveals? In fact, Philip Yancey uh, wrote these words, and it's quoted in uh, The Case for Faith from Lee Strobel, but here's what he says. After wide-ranging research into the, into the topic of suffering, Philip Yancey wrote, I, I have visited people whose pain far exceeded my own. I was surprised by its effects. Suffering seemed as likely to reinforce faith as so agnosticism. Scottish theologian James S. Stewart said, it is the spectators, the people who are outside looking at the tragedy, 
from whose ranks the skeptics come. It's not those who are actually in the arena and who know suffering from the inside. Indeed, the fact is that it is the world's greatest sufferers who have produced the shining examples of unconquerable faith. And that's why Acts 14, uh, verse 22, shares these words. They went back, they retraced some of their steps to these churches, and they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is uh, speaking to the Ephesian elders, and I, I believe it's in that same section, and he says, and now bound in spirit, I go to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Acts 20, 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my, dear, my life dear to myself, so that I may finish the race with joy, and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. When Paul was first called and Jesus is interacting with Ananias and Ananias has questions about how Saul could be God's chosen instrument, uh, Jesus says to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for me. Wow, really? <laughs> Can you imagine out of the gate getting your ministry call from a mentor or someone who laid hands on you? By the way, Jesus wants you to know he's going to show you how much you will be suffering for him in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, I got a prophecy today. What was it? What was it? Was it exciting? Was it exhilarating? Oh, yeah. Jesus is going to be showing me over the coming decades how much, wait for it, I must suffer for him. Isn't it foreign to us? In fact, we're having a hard time with it right now. I can see it. Like, like what? But the problem that we have in the American church that we just haven't wrestled with these kinds of concepts very much. Now, I want to tell you that even though I've given you some tough news, some good news coming up, it's going to be good news for us and bad news for other people. Check it out. It says, six, for after all, 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, it is only just for God to repay, you call this a divine or holy payback, with affliction, that's our same word, flipsis, or for tribulation, those who afflict you. Now, to add to the idea here of suffering, because we all struggle with how to deal with it, Paul says don't worry about it, because God is going to deal with the people who do it to you. And it will be just, it's only right, it's only righteous for God, middle, uh, beginning of six, to repay with tribulation, those who cause you pain, because Jesus said to Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? When you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Jesus takes persecution personally. And this is where Paul says in Romans 12, brethren, never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. For God says, I will repay saith the Lord. How many of us, I was listening to Tony Evans the other day, he's preaching on Romans 12, and he said, how many of you, and this is how he preaches, have gotten in the way of God when you tried to repay people and you got in the way of God doing his repay? So something like that. He's, he's such a good, I don't know how he still has a voice. And I, every time I listen to Tony at lunchtime, I'm like, yeah. Yeah! Yeah! And substance, man. And fire. And substance and fire. It's good. And he said, how many of you have gotten the way? <laughs> and you're trying to do the repayment, and maybe you got in the way of what God wanted to do to your enemy. <laughs> There's another foreign concept, right? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> 
We struggle with that, right? What's going to happen to those people who have done these dastardly deeds? Because there's been some terrible things done to the church. Precious blood of the saints that have been spilled. What, what is God? Does God just from heaven just say, well, that I'm doing it to stretch my people? Well, partly, but he also says, don't worry about it because I'm going to take care of those people. And I want you to be still and know that I am God. Not you. I am God, Psalm 46.10. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's only right. And to give relief to you, seven, who are afflicted, and to us as well. Paul was going through his own suffering. And then here we go. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed, there's our word apocalypsis where we get apocalyptic. It means a public disclosure, coming into public view, a revelation, the book of Revelation. Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Verses 7 through 10, some believe is an early church hymn, perhaps sung by the early church about the second coming of the Lord. That's what some believe. It's, uh, I think, one long sentence. But... Here it points to the second coming. And it's as if Paul is saying, the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet, and we'll get into this in chapter two. But when it does, God's gonna come in holy retribution, and two things are gonna happen. You're gonna get relief, Greek word anasis. It speaks of rest or relief. The original Greek word pointed to the loosening of a bowstring that was taut in a bow, tight, in warfare, and when it was loosened is the idea of rest. And the rest is going to come, at least for a group of people, did you see it in verse seven? When the Lord Jesus comes. And there are a lot of people who believe that because of the flow of the verses and the setting of First and Second Thessalonians, we only have a couple possibilities of what this rest could be. And one main idea is that it's the rest of rapture. It's the rest of deliverance. It's the, it's the Lord coming and rescuing his people, relieving the pressure, which is the idea of the Greek word for rest here, and then pouring retribution in his act of judgment on the, of the day of the Lord when that day comes. And for those of you who are still wrestling with your timing of the rapture, and your belief on what it looks like. Let me just say to you that if this is the rapture, then that means that the rapture happens at the visible second coming of the Lord Jesus with all his angels and flaming fire, which is the day of the Lord. And I know for some of you, this is difficult for you to swallow a little bit because you've been taught a pre-tribulation rapture, and I understand, and I'm not here to get into a big debate because there's good people on all sides. But I'll just tell you this. If this is the rapture, then the rapture happens at a single second coming. Not at the beginning of a seven-year tribulation period in secret and then waiting till the end for the visible manifestation of the Lord with his angels in fire. Everybody with me? Shake your heads just so you sort of, kind of. Everybody with? So, so, Here's, here's the deal. If, if the second coming is a singular second coming in this glory and fire and power like Mount Sinai when God came down on the mountain with fire, then the rescue of God's people is going to happen at a single second coming when he rescues them into rest. And this could even be, you know, speaking of millennial rest, and then pours retribution on an unbelieving world. Something to think about. Because I know a pre-tribulation rapture sounds really good. And if I have a vote, I'm voting for it. <laughs> but God has not sent a ballot to me. So, I... Oh, it's in the mail. <laughs> it got tossed aside on accident. Sorry. The parousia, please turn to two passages, Isaiah 66 I'm going to show you two Old Testament passages that are really cool to look at. The parousia says, uh, Bruce, 
the second coming of the Lord, will be the occasion, what you want is Isaiah 66, will be the occasion for equitable retribution and reward, and you could add rest. This is Isaiah 66, the last chapter of the book of Isaiah. So much incredible stuff here, but take a look at Isaiah 66, 15 and 16. Here's what it says. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord, Isaiah 66, 16, will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh. And those slain by the Lord will be many. And then over to Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. And this is chapter four. And this is just another verse about this idea of the day of the Lord and what it looks like. And it is a powerful reminder that our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. Malachi 4, verse 1 says this. Surely, for behold, the day is coming, burning, it will burn like a furnace. I'm going to read from the NIV. It will burn like a furnace, Malachi 4, 1. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire. Says the Lord Almighty, not a root or a branch will be left to them. And it should be, I think, a little quiet because that's sobering, isn't it? The Lord is gonna come in mighty power. Like he manifested himself, we'll finish it up back to 1 Thessalonians, like on Mount Sinai. See, God is not to be trifled with. Our God, Hebrews 12, 29, is a consuming fire. Timothy says he dwells in unapproachable light. He said to Moses, who was probably the closest guy to God in the Old Testament that I can think of, you can't see my face and live. Take your shoes off. Because you're standing on holy ground. And Moses is looking at a bush that's, that's uh, on fire but not consumed. What does that mean? It means that the people are suffering in Egypt. They're on fire in persecution. But they will not be consumed because I, the Lord, I do not change Malachi 3.6. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Amazing. God is holy. And when Jesus comes again, it is going to be the light show of all light shows. He's going to come in the blaze of his glory and all the angels with him. And it will be like nothing this world has ever seen before. And rest will come to the people of God. Resurrection, rapture, rest. But part B of that, and I'll try to move quickly, for the unbelieving world is that he will come dealing out retribution, First Thess 2 Thessalonians 1.8, to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has believed our report. You might ask, well, who's gonna be judged that day? Verse eight, those who don't know God, and I think this is the same idea, just walking it out, those who do not obey the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God sent his son, that he lived the perfect life for us, that he died on a cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he came on a rescue mission and he doesn't want anybody to perish, but all to come to repentance. And he says, believe in my son, trust in me, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But if you don't come, if you are not in Christ on that day, then retribution is what's coming. And here, specifically to the enemies of the cross, the enemies of God's people, here's God's vengeance. It is retribution that he will deal out to those who don't know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will not obey the report. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel right out of the gate. Mark 1, 15. 
And if you want to just uh, get one more angle on this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, right to your right, uh, has a little bit more about these folks. With all deception, 2 Thessalonians 2.10, of wickedness for those who perish because, 2 Thessalonians 2.10, they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. If you will not receive the love of the truth, which is in Jesus, then you won't be saved. And then a little bit more sobering. <laughs> and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Away or shut out, NIV, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. In evangelicalism in the last several decades, there's been a debate whether or not we could make the case for annihilationism. Let me explain. Some evangelical scholars, who I think mean well, and there are other cult groups who have embraced this kind of idea, some other religions as well, that God, instead of eternally causing someone to be under his wrath, conscious suffering, if you will, they will be annihilated. And the key word here is what does eternal destruction mean? Does it mean to be destroyed in the sense that you go out of existence? Alethros is the Greek word. And I'll just tell you that even though there's arguments going on and so forth, this is one scholar. He says, destruction, alethros, does not refer to annihilation, but to ruination. Leon Morris says, they pass into a night on which no morning dawns. Eternal destruction is the alternative to God's gift to believers, eternal life. If eternal life is the life of the age to come, the resurrection age, eternal destruction is destruction in the age to come, with a strong implication, says F.F. Bruce, of finality. Here, the eternal destruction consists in the exclusion from the presence of God with whom is the fountain of life. The Lord here is Jesus, as the following clause makes plain. In the judgment scene of Matthew 25, 41 and 46, the Son of Man says, depart from me, he addresses those on his left hand and it involves their departure into eternal punishment. Some have argued that if annihilation is a true doctrine that we should consider and it seems more palatable, let's face it, then how would that be fair, for example, if, if Adolf Hitler simply was burned up by God in a moment for all the evils that he had perpetrated? Now, some say, well, maybe what God will do is he'll mete out judgment for a time that's commensurate with, in keeping with what someone did wrong, and he'll punish, 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 and then annihilate. And then there's others, and this has been the traditional view of the church has really been that, no, it's eternal, and the word eternal means eternal, and it's, I tell you, it's, it's a hard thing to fathom, is it not? Because any of us who you know, have witnessed to anybody and were considering their eternity without God. I mean, in the last couple of days, Eddie Van Halen dies, Bob Gibson dies, uh, you know, um, Whitey Ford, well, all the baseball guys. But, but you know, if you, if you go back and you do a Google search and say something like this, what famous people died in the last year? You will be shocked. How many people you've forgotten about have entered into eternity? And let me just say this. Whatever God does in the end, eternity is too long to be wrong about your soul. Jesus said, what, what are you going to give in exchange for your soul? You could gain the whole world, and if you forfeit your soul, you're a fool. When he comes, Jesus is coming, and that's why the verses point to his all judgment given to the Son to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled 
at among all who have believed. What a day of marveling that will be. We don't know what we're going to be yet. You know, we don't know fully what the resurrection body encompasses, at least in its totality. But we know when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him just as he is. Lord God, thank you that on that day we're going to marvel because the testimony about Christ was believed. End of verse 10. By your grace, we were able to believe the good news and be saved and be co-heirs with Christ and know even if we have to deal with some suffering, you're gonna make all things that have been wrong in this world right again. And there's been a lot wrong, Lord, and the church has suffered, unjustly suffered. Even in our day, sometimes Christians are uh, targeted for persecution and it's almost inexplicable why. But our Bibles help us understand a little bit more about this. And Lord, what we want to do right now is take a moment just to be exhilarated once again at the fact that you are coming again to make everything that's wrong right again, to bring relief and rest to your people, to usher them into a kingdom where you will rule and reign and there will be peace. Finally, the curse will be gone. Finally, war will be learned no more. And yet at the same time, Lord, there's a gospel to preach because persecutors even can be saved. And Paul, who wrote the letter, was the chief example. It doesn't mean that all people who persecute Christians are totally lost. They can, they can also decide to get saved. And it's happened time and again. And we pray that it would be true. The way that we handle these times would draw people to you, not repel them from the gospel. So would you help us, Lord, because we are weak and frail and we often feel ill-equipped to deal with the stuff that comes our way. But with you and in Christ, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Now, before this closing song, I want to give you the benediction because it's beautiful. And I'm going to ask you to stand and maybe you could just raise up your hands and just receive it for yourself. Uh, maybe you want to read it along with me because it's just so beautiful. And so Paul says, to this end, also we pray for you always, that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, in order that our name, the name of our Lord Jesus, may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ.